Let's open our Bibles to uh, John 19. I've entitled this Good Friday 2015, and these are going to be the seven sayings that Jesus spoke from the cross as he was on the cross from nine till three, three of those hours being darkened. I'm going to spend a little time talking about the significance of numbers in the scripture. Jesus would have been uh, 33 years old. His ministry would now have lasted for three years. The disciples would have been with him day and night during that uh, three-year period of time. Um, 33 prophecies were fulfilled during this six-hour period of time and Jesus was 33 years old. So we could make a whole study on just three and the number 33. But I'd rather talk about the number seven because it was seven is simply the number of completion. And uh, at seven different times, and we're going to go through all seven of them today, showing what Jesus said, what order they were said in. But I believe the significance of seven statements is making a statement itself and that it's saying it's complete. Uh, seven is the number, some say, of perfection, but not really. It's really the number of completion. Uh, we have, I often make mention, there's uh, uh, seven days in a week, unless, of course, you're a Beatle fan, right? Think about it. If you're in my age, you'll eventually get it. Um, there are, in John's Gospel, uh, we say that when we teach through the Gospel of John, it's, it's not like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We call them the synoptic Gospels because they're very, very similar. They have a genealogy and so forth. John's doesn't. John decides instead to write about seven miracles that Jesus did. And then he ends it by saying, oh, there's many other things that Jesus said and did. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There were much more than seven, but John just picked seven. And his point is he wants to show the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God. So he picks seven I am statements. And you can do your own homework on that. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. And so on and so forth. But there's seven of them. As we go on with John's writing, we find that God kept John alive to be an instrument to write the book of Revelation. And he told him to write seven letters to seven churches. And in chapter 5, Jesus goes up to the Father on the throne and he takes a scroll from the Father's hands. The Bible says that you couldn't even look on his scroll. Nobody could look at it. Uh, Heaven and earth fled when they saw this scroll. And Jesus walks up and takes a scroll out of the Father's hands and it said it had seven seals on it. When Jesus opened the first seal, it began in Revelation 6 verse 1, It began a seven-year period of time fulfilling Daniel, what we like to call Daniel's 70th week. God owes Israel seven years. From chapter 4, chapter 6, all the way to 19, we have a seven-year period of time. And one by one, Jesus is going to open the scrolls. But again, there are seven of them. Now, contained in these judgments, seven of them are seal judgments, Seven of them are trumpet judgments, and seven of them are bowl judgments. They intensify. 
And what we have, if I would sum it up in a nutshell, these um, verses, these judgments, not only the number of seven and the seven angels and so on and so forth, but here we have the completion, because it says in uh, chapter 6, I think verse 21 or something, that this is the wrath of the Lamb. But my point, it, it is a complete wrath of God, total and complete, being poured out uh, until, until he's satisfied. Heavy stuff in there. I mean, um, right before they get into the final judgment, it says it was so heavy that there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. Now, that can get really awkward. That tells me a lot, for one thing. The first thing it explains to me is that if there's, there's silence in heaven for a half an hour, there's no women in heaven, none whatsoever. Amen? amen? Okay, I got one amen here. It's a heavy study, okay? I always get them on that one. But with it comes and it ends with God bringing uh, complete devastation to planet Earth as, as uh, they blaspheme God because of the judgments. And basically then what happens is you have the end of the seven-year tribulation. You have Matthew 25, a 45-day period of time of judgment upon the Earth. And then it's interesting because then we'll begin the seventh uh, thousand year period of time. Man has been here for 6,000 years. And we're getting ready to enter that 7,000th year. And we'll be talking more about that during our creation conference. We take it literally that we've been here for 6,000 years, not millions and millions and billions, but 6,000 years. And we're getting ready to enter into the seventh, which would mean what? God's completion for his purpose, and then he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. But it'll only be after everything is completed. Now, um, Jesus did make seven statements from the, um, from the cross. On the day that Karl Marx died on March 14, 1883, his housekeeper came to him and said, tell me your last words and I'll write them down. And Marx replied, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. The last words can be very revealing. P.T. Barnum said that he, as he was dying, what were the day's receipts? In other words, how much money did we make today? Interesting. Job says, I came with nothing. Naked I came, right? Naked I go. What does it matter what the receipts were? He couldn't take any of it with him. But that, that was his last words. Napoleon said, Chief of the army. And the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said his last words, Jesus died for me. John Wesley, uh, the best of all is God is with us. And uh, here are just some of the last words that some people in history have, have laid out. Our afternoon is going to be spent looking at what the last words of Jesus was, so I need to have you turn with me to Luke chapter 23 as we dive into the study of God's word on this Good Friday. Luke 23, looking at verses um, 33 and 34. It says, and when they had come to the place called Calvary. There they crucified him 
and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And uh, before I go too far, we're going to come back to these two guys. One of them is in heaven today and one isn't, okay? And that's going to play into a misunderstanding of Jesus' first comment in verse 34. So these are the first words as he looks down at these Roman soldiers. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. This fulfilled Psalm 22, where they, one of the 33 prophecies where they were casting lots. Jesus is going to speak to the Father three times from the cross. This is the first one. Other times he'll be speaking to someone else. But here, Jesus, uh, for the first time, speaks to the Father, and he asks them to be forgiven. You know, here you have the creator of the universe. When they came to arrest him, Peter pulls out a sword and starts wailing it around. Put it away, Pete. He says, don't you know that I could call for 12 legions of angels right now? And they would take care of all this. But he put them in their place anyway just by saying, hey, who are you guys looking for anyway? And um, they said they were looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. Now, that's that's not one of the I am statements, but... As a result of those words going forth, that complete um, thug, bodyguards, whatever they were, who came to arrest Jesus, they all were knocked down. So the only place that I know about anyone being slain in the spirit, and that's the context that is in. The thing that amazes me, I would have went home after that. Instead, they got, they got up and Judas kissed him and, and, and um, he was betrayed by one of his own. My point is he could have, but he didn't. He could have called for the angels. He could have called for the uh, Father to bring judgment upon them. But this also, this first statement from the cross fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, and I'll quote it. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, And he was numbered with the transgressors. There it is. And he bore the sins of many. This is going to be important. Many, not all. And made intercession for the transgressors. In other words, the Roman soldiers that were putting the nails in his hands and his feet. He's asking the Father to forgive them. Now, lest it be misunderstood, a universalist is somebody who believes that everybody is going to go to heaven because of what Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But in context, what, was, what it means is when one scripture isn't um, fully explained, then you lean back on, on what the scripture clearly does teach on that particular issue. You can't make this scripture here um, a universal scripture. That means because Jesus died on the cross, everybody's going to heaven. No. Remember the thief? One believed and was in paradise, and the other's in hell to this day. So what is being said? Well, it's just like what he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know who I am. They don't know what they're doing. But it did not mean that because they did not have that understanding that they would be saved. The Bible clearly makes it clear here that he died for the sins of many, but not the sins of all. 
That's the first statement from the Bible. Luke 23, let's look at the second one. Verse 39 through 43, also in Luke 23. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, then save yourself and save us too. But the other answered, he rebuked him, saying, don't you even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, I hope we get to see this moment. Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the second thing Jesus said on the cross was to this thief, he had no good works, never went to synagogue, uh, was only known as a reputation as a thief, never said the sinner's prayer, never got baptized, none of the above. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There are some misunderstandings also about this verse. First of all, it is one of the 33 prophecies fulfilled on this day. Isaiah 53 verse 12 again says, he was numbered with the transgressors, one on each side of him. Notice the difference between the two. They were both thieves, but somewhere in watching all this, the lights went on for one of them. As one was mocking Um, This other guy just did not feel this is right. And this is what he admitted to. Let's go back to verse 40. First of all, he believed in God. Uh, He says, don't you even fear God? Well, uh, even at death, you know, there's the old saying, there's there's no atheist in a a foxhole. Well, evidently, uh, there was here uh, with one of them, but not the other one. He knew it was lying ahead. Uh, seeing we are under the same condemnation. So number one, he did believe in God. Number two, he was aware that he was worthy of the judgment that was being out, being merited out against him. We deserve, justly deserve our deeds. What we did was wrong, and we're being punished for it. But this man has done nothing wrong, and it's becoming more and more obvious as he's watching. Jesus, first of all, is saying, Father, for, forgive them for they don't know what they do. You're saying that to the people that are killing you? Who are you? And that's what this guy is thinking. And well, the lights go on. He calls him Lord. He said, would you just remember me? Now, again, it's not so much what a person says if he walks down the altar or how you go about your conversion to salvation. The, the question is, is it sincere? And do you really believe it? Do you really believe that he has the capacity to move from point A to point B, from, from uh, earth to heaven. And the Lord told him straight out, today you're gonna to be with me in paradise. Well, this is also needs to be explained because on Sunday we're gonna talk about um, the resurrection. Amen, something to look forward to. All right, but when he raises from the dead, here's Mary Magdalene. She thought he was the gardener but then she recognizes his voice and she said, Lord, Rabboni. And she went and put a bear hug on him. He got away once, but he wasn't gonna get away twice as far as she was concerned. And Mary, don't do that. And then it says what? Because I have not yet ascended unto my father. 
Here's the question. How could the thief be in heaven that day? Jesus said, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. If Jesus himself said he hadn't ascended to heaven to marry after the third day and the resurrection. Well, the answer is explained in the book of Ephesians chapter four, where it says before Jesus ascended, he first descended into the earth. Luke chapter 16 tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Is everybody tracking with me? They both die. One goes and is buried and ends up in hell, and the other one is in a place called Abraham's bosom, i.e. paradise. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 13, what happened to all those Old Testament saints? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Gideon, all. What happened to them when they died? They couldn't go to heaven because Jesus had not yet died on the cross. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, these all died in faith. He's speaking about the Old Testament saints. Not having received the promise. Well, what's the promise? Well, heaven. But seeing them afar off, we're assured, embrace them and confess that we're simply passing through this world, strangers and pilgrims. That's why you don't, shouldn't get all hung up, too much hung up with this world. We're told to touch it ever so lightly. Paul to Timothy, be a good soldier, Timothy, hang in there, and don't touch this world too lightly. So just passing by. You're just a pilgrim. You're just a stranger. And um, so when we read, today you'll be with me in paradise, it says Jesus went there, and he, kept, he set the captives free. That's a prophecy from Isaiah. It's in the book of Ephesians chapter four, and that's being fulfilled uh, right here. Well, I was studying, uh, Judy and I were um, witnessing to our friends and neighbors when we were down in Arizona this past week, and um, we were just doing our morning devos on, uh, on the front porch. It was 85 degrees, and... And oh, I didn't. Did I slip out? Sorry, didn't mean to tell you that. Drinking our coffee and that was nice. That was nice. Anyway, Mario comes over. He's he's an Italian war vet. He's got a purple heart. Got shot three times. We're we're good buddies. And um, you know, I said, "Do you want to know what we're studying about for Sunday?" And he said, "Yeah, sure. Why not?" And um, he has a Catholic background. And as we're explaining that it's going to be on Jonah, uh, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I began to explain the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And I says, do you know what that is? He goes, yeah, it's purgatory. And I says, no, that's not right. He says, well, what is it then? I said, well, let me just ask you a question, Mario. Here's a question. I said, I know you believe in Jesus. I know you pray every single day. Uh, but when Jesus died on the cross, do you believe that he died for every sin, past, present, and future? And he didn't bat an eye. He said, absolutely, I believe that. And, I, and then I said, then I have a question for you. Why is it necessary for there to be a purgatory? And it's just he never thought of it before. He never thought of it before. And sometimes when you're sharing with your Catholic friends who have a heart for the things of the Lord, what they simply haven't done is studied and opened their heart up to the word of God. He says, I can't understand the, the Bible when I, when, I, when I read it. And I said, just ask the Lord and he'll show you. He will open up 
your heart, and he'll open this thing up. The Lord says, come, let us reason together. It's a reasonable thing. And I said, if you, when we leave today, Maria, I want you to go home with just one thing that we learned, and that's this. There is no purgatory. He says, I believe that, because the other part makes sense. Jesus died for all of my sins, therefore it's not necessary. I told them it wasn't even, it wasn't even invented until 400 years after Christ was, um, the Gospels were written. I says, man's invention. And I'll just leave it at that. I gave him a little bit more lecture on, on why he shouldn't believe it, but I'll just leave it at that. So we find the thief here, as Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's in heaven today. Because it goes on to say when Jesus rose from the grave, many other people rose from the grave with him. Matthew 27, verse 52. And uh, we'll be getting to that. Let's go to our third statement from the cross. John chapter 19, where Pastor Lane was reading for us earlier. uh, Looking at verse um, 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, notice John is is writing the, the gospel of John, and this is how he refers to himself, that disciple whom Jesus loved. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son, He's looking down at Mary from the cross. And then he looked at John and he said, Disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Mary is an interesting woman. It's interesting that when we talk about Mary, we find at the beginning of the Gospel of John, the very first of the seven miracles that I mentioned was the turning of the water into wine. It was a wedding feast at Cana. Mary was attending uh, the wedding and she was involved somehow with food preparation, just like when we have a wedding here or a funeral. Here we have the gals involved with behind the scenes being servants. And by the way, it was only the servants who got to see the miracle. They're the ones that poured the water and uh, one of the benefits of serving the Lord is you get to see the hand of the Lord. So you want to say amen at that? One of the benefits of being a Christian and being used by the Lord is watch the Lord do supernatural things very, very naturally. Pouring water from one pitcher to another and all of a sudden it was uh, uh, the wine. Matter of fact, the guy who was heading up the wedding said usually they serve the, the, uh, the junky wine first and they, see, they save the, the best or the other way around. Usually they serve the best first and then uh, they use the weaker stuff later. And he said, but this, they've, they've saved the best for last. Well, she was involved with, um, that was the first time Mary is mentioned. And what I want to point out about, about Mary here is these are the last recorded words of Mary. For those of you who are witnessing the people who see Mary other than somebody, uh, than a sinner like you and me. And her last recorded words are John 2, verse 5, and this is what she said. Whatever he says, do it. Isn't that great? Whatever he says, do it. 
Those are the last recorded words of Mary. And then we find um, that's where Jesus displayed his power. It was his first miracle. He manifested his glory and turned the water into wine. But in John 19, our Lord Jesus here is dying in weakness like a lamb led to the slaughter and in shame. He could have exercised his power, delivered himself, but he chose not to. And his mother is watching all of this. Now, I was around when my mother died. It's heart-wrenching. My prayer was she wouldn't suffer. And the Lord answered my prayer. The Lord took her quick. She died of lung cancer. And um, so I thank the Lord for that. But this also fulfills a prophecy as she's standing looking up at the cross. Because remember when Jesus was dedicated, Simeon was there and he made a prophecy. He said, someday Mary, a sword shall pierce you, you through your own soul. And she experienced the climax of that suffering at the cross where a mother had to watch her son go through such torment. Nobody really got it except uh, some of these gals that were there. The fourth statement that Jesus made from the cross, we have to go back to Matthew chapter 27. So let's go back there, look at verses 45 through 49. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. I'll come back and comment on that in a second. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This also is one of the prophecies from Psalm 22, verse 1. That's how it begins. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But let's just talk a little bit about past, present to that time, and future darkness that's coming. The ninth plague that God sent to Egypt when Moses was being used as an instrument to deliver them out of bondage, there were three days of darkness, a darkness so thick that it could be felt. There was darkness over Egypt before the final judgment of the Passover and the death of the firstborn. And I just think about the darkness and the father's one and only son, and darkness was also happening during this period of time. And um, he goes on and asks the question, why? My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why was he forsaken? Why was he lonely? Well, That's what sin does. Sin isolates us from God. Sin separates a man from God. Sin separates man from man, and sin separates a man from himself. When Jesus died, he was separated at that moment in time. For how how long, who knows? Theologians can argue that one through. The fact is, he was separated. Why was he forsaken of the Father? Well, the answer is that we might never be forsaken by the Father. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He went through darkness that we might have light. He went through isolation for us. That is what hell is. Um, And again, we talk about hell so, so glibly sometimes. But here's the reality of 
giving both sides of the message of heaven and hell. What is hell? It's eternal loneliness. Eternal loneliness. It's eternal isolation. You know, before I was saved and, and um, in the days of uh, Hendrix and, and Joplin and Jimmy Morris, they all died at the age of 28. We thought that was interesting coincidence. And we thought, but you know, what the heck, we're all going to meet up. We'll be partying hardy in hell. And um, we were so flippant and uh, so arrogant to be making such statements, having absolutely no idea what we were talking about. None. Zilch. Nada. Uh, there's no friendship in hell. There's no fellowship in the darkness of hell. We sense a great mystery here, the darkness around the cross, and a great mystery, the loneliness of the cross. He had never known this before, and that's why I can't relate to it. He had always been in fellowship, not from a beginning point, but just always. There had never been that broken fellowship, and it had to take place because as we read before we began, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I call it the great exchange. God took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. Now give me an amen on that one. That's the good news if there ever was good news. And so on the other hand, uh, we have no fear of ever being separated. Um, I'll never leave you now. I'll never forsake you. And there's no power in the universe that can take you out of the Father's hands. It happened once. It'll never happen again. And those who are in Christ will never, ever experience that eternal loneliness or separation. But we all have friends that will. We all know people, and they don't know what's on the other side of that. The fifth statement is in John chapter 19. So let's go ahead to that. John 19, picking up in verse 28. The fifth statement, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What do we have here again? Another prophecy that has to be fulfilled said, I thirst. In Psalm 22, verse 15, is the fulfillment, and I'll read it. It says, my strength is dried up like a pot shred and my tongue clings to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of death. It's hot in Israel, and um, it would have been hot that day, not maybe during this time, during the darkness. But we have here the idea of him thirsting. So they says in verse 29, he took sour wine, was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with, with the wine and put it on hyssop and put it up to his mouth. If you trace the word water in the Gospel of John, we already find that uh, he already turned water into wine. And um, in John chapter 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, he talks about thirst. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink of me. There was a woman at the well. He told her, if you drink of that water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never, ever be thirsty again. So the idea of human thirst and being satisfied 
And the good news is people thirst for a lot of stuff down here. It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't fulfill. You'll still want more. Just like P.T. Barnum, how much is enough? I don't know how much we make today. What were the receipts? And that's what they're interested in. Here's the good news in Revelation 7, verse 16. They shall hunger, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Revelation 22, 17, the last invitation invites all those who thirst to come and take of the water of life freely. This is an ordinary water. This is living water. I'm really curious about this one. I want to know what living water looks like. And I want to know what it tastes like. And, uh, but we're going to experience that because Jesus went to the point of suffering where the very top of his mouth was so dry that his tongue was probably swollen and stuck to the top, and it was foretold by David in Psalm 22. The sixth saying of Jesus in John chapter 19, now in verse 30, right after this, and when Jesus had had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. In the Greek word, it's the, the word, to telestai, and it basically means paid in full, job done. If you were to check a Greek lexicon, you would find that the servants and the slave use this word. A worker to his master would use this word. A master would tell a servant to go do this or that or the other thing, and when the servant had completed the task, he would come back and say, to telestai, job's done. I finished the work that you as my master have given me to do. Jesus said, for this reason, I came into the world. I mean, the whole reason, John the Baptist, the day he was first pointed out, there he is, there's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And when it's all said and done, he's gonna say, Tetelestai, it's finished. Father, the work that you gave me to do has been accomplished, and it is finished, it is complete. Tetelestai. It brings us to our last one, And that we have to go back to Luke chapter 23, looking at verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That's why it's important to have a cross check with with the Gospels because we find here um, from it is finished that he gave up the ghost. But before that happens, Luke tells us here, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And what happened here is that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, actually died. He died physically on the cross. And um, just to make sure, that they couldn't believe it there was the sabbath was beginning to come and so they broke the legs of the two thieves and in so doing uh, their inability to push themselves up so that they could get oxygen into their lungs they simply suffocated that was the reason for the breaking of the legs so now they're going to go to jesus but they look at him and if you're a roman soldier you know when somebody's dead you just know but to make sure one of them took a spear and thrust it into his heart, and both blood 
and water came out. He was dead, physically dead. And as soon as he died, we hear that there was a great earthquake. It was already dark. I mean, I'm I'm sure there were a lot of people freaking out there at this time. But something more important took place at that very moment. It says, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. What was behind the veil of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. Only a high priest could go in there once a year to make atonement for sin, once a year. And he had to be atoned himself before he, he could, himself could go in. The other thing that happened is that some graves were opened and uh, some of the saints were resurrected. But now it clarifies that when you read it in uh, Matthew 27, it says, after his resurrection. So you don't want to get the idea here that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was op- opened up. Can you imagine being a priest on duty that day? I mean, you would die immediately. Not going into the, You can't stand in the presence of God and live. Well, it tells us that after his resurrection, then those Old Testament saints, they came out of their graves. Now, how weird would that be if you had a family member that died four years ago? And all of a sudden, you get one of those knocks on the door. And you go, Uncle Harry, what are you doing? He was on his way to heaven. And for some reason, he wanted to leave a witness of the power of the resurrection. Jesus died. And we are here today, and it's Good Friday. And we're remembering his words. He told us to remember his words. He told us to take these words and hide them in our heart. And so that we know them so well that when we have our difficult times of trial and temptation, people just don't like you simply because you're a Christian. Hey, know what you signed up for. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And if you're going to be a stickler about always quoting prophecies being fulfilled, they're not going to want to hear it. Oh, there will be the memorials of the world that will think it through. Why would there need to be a purgatory if all my sins are taken care of? That makes sense. And so we're to take God's word, take it into our heart, so that whatever you're going through this coming week, know that it didn't come anywhere near to the sufferings of our Lord on on the cross, or the apostle Paul, for that matter. You know, his list of things that he said he went through. Jesus got the, the 40 lashes 39 one time. Paul got him five times. Shipwrecked, hungry often, cold often. Says that I got to worry about the church all the time. And then what blows my mind is what he said after that. He says, but none of these things move me. And I go, what? <laughs> none of these things move you? And I'm whining about some trivial little trial I'm going through. Uh, and it, when you put things in the proper perspective and realize, know that you suffer, if our Lord suffered and died and he was willing to do it, then you know that uh, we're not to count it a strange thing when we're tried by fiery trials. But what happens so often? We go through a trial and we go, this is strange. The Bible says, don't think it's strange. You're going to. Let me tell you this. The more serious you're about the Lord and more serious about this book being the inerrant word of God and it's true from cover to cover. That was one of the other things Mario said. He says, do you believe all that's true? And I said, every bit of it. And I use prophecy as my trump card. 
I said, Moriarty, there's, there's just one. If there's just one. One of the prophecies that Jesus said must be fulfilled. If just one of them never came to pass, then you can throw it away. That, that's called a false prophet. But every one of these at 33 that we're talking about in this Good Friday, history tells us, this word tells us, it happened just the way he said. So that as he was lifted up, there's this uh, little poem that I'll close with. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. Is he your savior today? Have you made your peace with him? Don't let another good Friday or Easter or Resurrection Sunday, as I like to call it, go past without knowing that it's all been paid for. And um, that truth should set you free. Amen? Let's stand as we close in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful beyond words. And we're grateful that your word gives us your words of what you went through for us. And what can we say except hallelujah, what a savior. And um, thank you that we never have to fear being separated from you. Help us not trust in our emotions that might tell us otherwise, but help us, Lord, stand upon the word of God that says there is no power that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And on that we stand, and on that we thank you. In Jesus' name.